Looking back in time, the history show on KCLR with John Moynihan, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltot, Sports and Media. Good evening, you're very welcome along to the history show here on KCLR. I'm John Moynihan and thanks for joining me for the penultimate episode of the series. We've lots to get through tonight as usual, so here's what's coming up. Part 2 of our chat with Mullinavat man John Dunphy on the history and restoration of Deer Park Mill. John is a member of the famous Dunphy family, which has seen no less than five generations be at the helm of the mill throughout the years. So he's very well versed to tell us more about the project, as well as the open day held there recently. Commandant retired Larry Skellen on the 100-year centenary of the 3rd Battalion here in Kilkenny. We hear about the significance of the occasion, the highs and the lows of the last 100 years, and the history as to the establishment of the oldest infantry battalion in the state. And last but not least, part two of our chat with Thomastown man Joe Doyle, as he tells us more about the inscriptions on the gravestones at Thumpeltagon, a historic medieval graveyard in Grenon. What do the inscriptions mean and what are their historical context? Joe will explain all a little bit later in the programme. So all of that plus plenty more besides over the course of the next hour. I do hope that you can stay with me. As always, I'd love your thoughts and interaction throughout the programme, so please do get in touch. You can text me on the dinnersready.ie sponsored KCLR text and WhatsApp line on 083 306 9696 or you can email the programme at thehistoryshow at kclr96fm.com. Our webpage and podcast for season two of the programme can be accessed at kclr96fm.com slash the hyphen history hyphen show. So you can listen back to the programme there or on the KCLR app. And this week's show will be uploaded there later this evening if you want to have another listen. But first tonight, we're headed back to the parish of Mullinavat for part two of our chat with John Dunphy. As we heard last week, John is from Deer Park and is one of three brothers who are great-grandchildren of the first Dunphy man who would have come to Deer Park Mill in 1877. The mill has been in the Dunphy family for at least five generations and thanks to the efforts of John and his family, the great tradition continues to this day. Deer Park Mill is situated on the River Blackwater, about one mile to the south of Mullinavat village. It's a scenic area in a valley at the foot of the Walsh Mountains. It's four storeys high, stone-built and has a kiln building attached, which is considered to be one of the very best in the country. The mill's history can be traced back to at least 1850, as it's recorded on the Register of Mills and Millers of Ireland and Griffith's Valuation. This evening, we'll be hearing more about the mill's history, as well as more information on the restoration works that we heard about last week and the open day held at the mill. The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. was your motivation for the restoration of the building, John? One of the biggest ones was the name of the parish is Mullinavat and in Irish Mullinan Vata, the mill at the stick. So there was five or six mills in Mullinavat in the years gone by um, and they all had fallen into disuse. So 
I suppose that was the main reason, like that the parish was named after Mill. So to have to have a mill still in the parish and still going was was a big thing. The COVID was a help as well because there wasn't much else to be doing for a lot of the years between twenty and twenty two, and um, so there was more time um, to get involved in things like that and 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 um, maybe start taking vegetation and ivy and various things from around the walls and around the around the building. So then we started doing some research on um, restoration. Like when we looked at this project first, we thought it'd be nice to have the wheel going again, but we had no idea how we'd manage to do it. So we started looking up mills and people who were in mills and there's a society called the Mills and Millers of Ireland. And I contacted Marcus Sweeney, who has a, a beautiful mill along with his wife, Irene, Mills and Gardens in Fancroft, in just outside Ross Cray, and it's right on the border of Offaly and Tipperary. The building is actually on the border because the mill was ex- extended over time, and the river now runs through the centre of the mill, and the river is the border between Offaly and Tipperary. So, Marcus, we went to see Marcus's mill. You know, when we saw it going and the, the wheels turning and the internal machinery turning, like it, it kind of give us more motivation to try and get see the, the project through. Marcus then, in consultation with uh, Fred Hammond that I mentioned earlier, uh, he gave us the name of um, Patchean from Sheehan Sawmills in Burncourt, which is near Ballyporeen in County Tipperary, as a person with the expertise and the machinery and the, whatever was needed to make this wheel. And Pat has a lot of um, history, I suppose, in this field, um, he did a mill for Finnerty's Mill in Lochray in County Galway. He did a mill in the Kilbegan Distillery, a mill wheel in Kilbegan Distillery. Um, he did a gunpowder mills, all the wheel and internals in the mill in Cork. And he did various other mills in Ulster and Cavan and Fermanagh. Pat came down to see us one evening and he looked at the building and uh, was very impressed and excited by the project the, the project because he saw that the the mill itself, the buildings and the internal machinery were in excellent condition. He gave me a rough idea what the price would be to do the job because I suppose that was always going to be a, a factor. So then I contacted uh, the Heritage Office in the Kilkenny County Council and I spoke to Francis Cody. And um, Francis came down to visit us one evening and he was very impressed with the Condition the building and thought it was a really worthwhile project. Uh, I suppose we got a little bit of help from who to contact in the county council from uh, one of our local councillors here, Fidelis Doherty. Francis advised me then which grant uh, that the Build Heritage Investment Scheme was the correct grant to apply for for this type of project because that that grant is kind of designed for to help retain the skills of the people in. Trades like mill wheel construction, thatching, you know, renovating, plastering the old lime mortar plastering, and all that type of thing. I suppose we were awarded a grant then to do um, the project. Um, so, I suppose what we got in the grant and what money we could afford to spend on it ourselves, you know, we were able to do that. So we contacted Pat then again, and we told Pat the project was going ahead, and Pat um, began to source the material. Now, Pat is meticulous about conservation and he's really into that uh, field himself as well. So he um, like he, he wouldn't cut down an oak tree to 
build the wheel. Like he's always on the lookout for fallers and um, trees that have to be taken down because of dangerous, maybe danger to buildings or whatever. So it took him a little while to source the material that was needed uh, to build the wheel. So I suppose over a three-month period then, Pat and his team in in, in the sawmills manufactured the wheel um, and it was installed on the 29th of June, 2023. The wheel itself is 13 feet in diameter and about 4.5 feet in width. You know, so it's a fairly substantial piece of um, construction. What kind of materials did you use in the mill restoration, John? The shaft um, arms and bucket sides are made from oak. The buckets themselves and the sole plates are made from Douglas fir because from what Pat tells us, the whole construction would be too heavy if it was all made from oak. I suppose one of the conditions was we tried to reuse as much of the material which was there from the old wheel. Like all that was left was the old wheel was the shaft and um, and some metalwork. So the metalwork, I suppose, were those rosettes which gave the geometry of the wheel which the, the arms fitted into. And there was the gudgeons, which is like the axle which went in at both ends. And there was uh, steel bands which are used to secure the, the gudgeons. They're put on like the way the old bands were put on the wooden wheels on on carts uh, where they have to be reddened and, and, and hammered on over the over the, the timber and then they contracted as they cooled so to hold the whole lot together. So that was the construction. Tell us more about the open day you held at the mill, John. We held an open day then in, um, in conjunction with the Buckstown Vintage Club and this was organised by Seamus Anderson who was local here in Mulnavat and he's was he's always being into cars and, and, and vintage um, machinery and I suppose he's after being a good help to us here in the in the mill he, he gives us a hand out when we're trying to do any work we didn't really advertise it because we weren't sure how many would turn up we weren't sure how many we could cater for so uh, just by sheer word of mouth I think about 200 people turned up on the day so it was a, a marvellous day um, and it was marvellous to see you know the old tractors old cars stationary engines older old machinery you know, sitting in the yard beside the mill. Um, and, it, you know, people were really impressed by the, the whole day. I remember Pat Sheehan, Pat and his family came and the first thing he said to me is, I'm delighted to see so many young people around here. So, you know, it just got people going and just the interest in in, 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 in the mill and, and the old machinery. It was actually heard, or held on the 12th of August, which is was during the Heritage uh, Week. Um, so Regina Fitzpatrick from... The, Kilkenny County Council had been in contact with me to see would we be interested in doing something for the Heritage Week but with this organised so I suppose that even though it wasn't officially a, a Heritage Week um, event it really fitted in very well with, with the, the Heritage Week and uh, Regina and her family visited on the day as well so it was great to welcome them along. So now that the whole thing is said and done and the restoration of Deer Park Mill is complete what are your thoughts now John? I suppose as regards what kind of a Takeout we'd have from the whole project, really. It was really enjoyable and it took a lot of work, I suppose, to get it done. But, you know, even since then, we have had a number of people and the local historical society um, have visited. And the takeout is people are just amazed at what people in those days, like maybe 200 years ago, what they managed to achieve in terms of the construction and the engineering and how they managed to move the 
big machinery into the positions and have them working and all working in harmony with each other. Um, you know, in them times with very little lifting equipment like what we have in the modern day. So, um, so that that was for, for me. That's one of the biggest takeouts from the project. That has really got people thinking about you know what our ancestors could do. Like you know. And finally, John, any future projects in mind in terms of the mill's history? Well, one of the things that has been suggested by um, Regina Fitzpatrick in the Heritage Office was to digitise the ledgers for future generations because um, they have survived for 170 years at this stage. So uh, just to to have them for future generations would probably be a very worthwhile project. A big thank you once again to John Dunphy of Deer Park Mill there for telling us more about the history of the mill, his family's connections and the restoration works that he undertook. Right now, though, it's time for a break on the programme. I do hope you'll stay tuned and join me again in part two when we'll be hearing from Commandant Retired Larry Scallon about the historic centenary of the 3rd Infantry Battalion based right here in Kilkenny, of course. I'll talk to you in a couple of minutes. Looking back in time, the history show on KCLOR, funded through the Creative Ireland program at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltot, Sport and Media. You're listening to the history show on KCLOR with John Moynihan. You're very welcome back to part two of the program. Now it's time to chat to someone that's no stranger to the program. He's a Wexford native, but he has lived in Kilkenny for the past 35 years. He also has 35 years of service to the Defence Forces under his belt, 33 of which were served here in County Kilkenny at James Stevens Barracks. I am, of course, speaking about Commandant Retired Larry Scallon, and he appears on the programme tonight speaking about a historic occasion that was celebrated earlier this year. The 3rd Infantry Battalion was established in 1923, and now, 100 years on, it's the perfect time to reflect, celebrate and remember the various successes and challenges that have occurred in that time frame. Wednesday nights from 6, this is KCLR's so History Show. the centenary of the 3rd Battalion in Kilkenny. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and maybe a little brief background of the history, I suppose, of the 3rd Battalion? So, yeah, this year was, uh, last January, was the, the centenary of the establishment of the 3rd Battalion. Uh, and it is the only inventory battalion in the Irish Defence Forces that can trace its heritage all the way back to that uh, the 24th of January 1923. Uh, but to take you back, during our War of Independence, every county had either at least one brigade, and some counties like Tipperary had more than one in Limerick and, and Dublin, but Kilkenny, for instance, had one brigade. And in, in that brigade then there were nine battalions. And they were numbered one to nine, obviously. Uh, the first battalion being Kilkenny City, the second battalion being Tullerone, and so on and so forth. Uh, throughout the seventh battalion being Callan, for instance, and that would be that that organisational chart or orbat order of battle would have been maintained for every brigade, sort of mirroring the establishment of a British Army Brigade, except the numbers in the Irish battalions will fluctuate. You might have a battalion which would be centred on a small parish in rural Kilkenny, uh, which might have a battalion of only 150 or 200 volunteers. 
And then you might have a larger battalion like the 1st Battalion in Kilkenny City, which might have 300. There was no set organisational structure, but there was the, the organisational uh, command structure was there in that every battalion had a battalion commander and a number of other officers in order to enhance the organisational capability of all those different areas within the brigade, which was led in Kilkenny uh, by three different brigade commanders, Tom Tracy, uh, uh, Peter DeLucre and, and George DeWire, for instance. Uh, and that was the same all over all over Ireland. So the 3rd Battalion, historically, came from Donegal. They were, a Donegal. they were a Donegal battalion within a larger brigade area in Donegal. And they fought throughout the War of Independence. They were very active, like all over Ireland. And uh, they fought against the Crown Forces. They had some uh, very successful attacks. And then they had a lot of activity, which would have not necessarily led to uh, Crown Forces uh, fatalities, but it certainly led to a denial of freedom of movement. In other words, the IRA, the IRA who, which were the, 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 the volunteers... The, their official name was the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, the official army of the First Dáil. Uh, so they're, they, they're, they managed by many different means to deny the Crown Forces uh, access to almost all of Ireland. They could only travel on main roads and so on and so forth. But we know that eventually there was a truce, there was a treaty signed, and then we had a problem. Because when in Ireland, there was a split straight away. There were the, the people who agreed with the content of the truce, like as signed by Collins and Griffith and, and others, uh, uh, who, who saw this, this treaty as having the potential to eventually lead to uh, a 32-county Ireland by stepping stones. And then you had the other side... Uh, uh, Led by Liam Lynch and and, and others, who and De Valera, who 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 said no, we want it's all or nothing here. We we are not prepared uh, to to accept less than what we've lost. Many men and women who trying to gain freedom for this uh, uh, desired Irish Republic, and and so so there was go, there was a civil war. Our civil war broke out. So right then, the structure of in the civil war, both sides, the, the, the Free State aligned part of the IRA and the anti-treaty aligned part of the IRA still called themselves the IRA, <laughs> pro-treaty and anti-treaty. And they still maintained the order of battle or the organisational chart that existed during the War of Independence. So you had guys in the 1st Battalion of the Kilkenny IRA Brigade who were anti-treaty and then you had the 1st Battalion IRA pro-treaty. And the, the war, the, the Civil War when it started in 1922 fought like that up until uh, the command structure of the national, the, the, the soon to be National Army said we cannot go on like this. We need structure. We need we need reporting lines. We need to be able to enhance our intelligence building capability. And to do that then, uh, there was uh, a structure brought out and it was published as General Routine Order Number 16 on the 24th of January 1923. And that routine order, 
actually changed Kilkenny from being the Kilkenny Brigade Pro Treaty to the 47th Battalion, for instance. But we're talking about the 3rd Battalion, who were in Donegal, became the 3rd Infantry Battalion of the National Army. And they were formed out of this this pro-treaty establishment who were already in existence as a a battalion in in a brigade in Donegal. It just became very streamlined. So now you had the 1st Battalion all the way up to... I'm not exactly sure how many battalions it went to, but say the 47th Battalion in Kilkenny, you knew as a brigade commander or a a divisional commander or the chief of staff that if you wanted to look for somebody in the 5th Battalion, well, you knew where all the 5th Battalion were. There wasn't 35 for 5th Battalions, one in each county. So so that structure came into place in 1923. The 3rd Battalion came into existence as a result of that routine order. And then as a result of that, there there was a gazetting of appointments in August that year, if memory serves me correctly, when all the officers were gazetted into each inventory, each battalion and each appointment in the Irish Army. And that became very formal then. And then you had, instead of a brigade in every county, you had larger brigade areas like the Waterford Division area, which General Plout, Prout was in charge of, would have encapsulated a large area of Welshie Kenny and Waterford and Wexford and, and counties. And he would have been given divisional command over that area. And within that area, he had a load of recognisable battalions. And, uh, and, and that's how the Civil War... Once the National Army formed into that cohesive albeit very immature army uh, they were able to uh, develop uh, operational uh, activities which had a very strong tactical result they were able to defeat the irregulars, the anti-treatyites the guys who were fighting for the anti-treaty side because of this organisational shift within the National Army to become much more professionally aligned with with conventional armies. They were able to, you know, chain a command, uh, information sharing, uh, operational activities, combined arms operations where you had artillery and inventory working together. All this was much better enhanced by this organisational change. And then the Civil War ended and the 3rd Battalion then moved a little bit from... They moved several times throughout their history. They were in Boyle and Roscommon. They were in the Cora during the emergency. They were actually in Kilkenny as well during the emergency and had a significant element in coastal defence in Wexford. And in fact, I've read a number of accounts where the 3rd Battalion, and I'm sure they weren't the only battalion, that shot down uh, uh, aircraft from both Germans and the Allies who were uh, who were interdicting or entering Irish ace airspace illegally. So they were quite active during, during the emergency. Uh, so they went then back to the Curra, where they stayed in the Curra until about 1998, when the headquarters of the 3rd Battalion shifted to Kilkenny. The battalion that was in Kilkenny then, called the 30th Battalion, was disbanded. And we then all soldiers in Kilkenny were rebadged as 3rd Battalion soldiers and from 1998 until today the 3rd Battalion is the the garrisoning battalion within James Stevens barracks. How much of an achievement is it 
to to reach a hundred year milestone, like a, a centenary. Yeah, well, it's to, right to to achieve being the oldest battalion in the Irish Army meant that we were actually the the first to achieve the centenary, a birthday of 100 years old. And that was seen as being very, very important within the cultural heritage of the third battalion, so much so that in January this year, we, we commemorated with an open day and as a veteran myself now, a retired member of the third battalion, it was a it gave it gave us all a great sense of pride. I saw veterans who came into barracks that day for the first time in years because they were so enthused by the by the by the the fact that we made it to one hundred uh, that they just came in and it became a very enjoyable social occasion whereby we all had you know a, a parade. And then there was a weapons display and there was a, a, a few little speeches. And then there was the cutting of our cake with a 100 birthday cake uh, and a 100-year-old birthday cake. Well, the birthday cake wasn't 100 years old. <laughs> we we had our, the cooks in the barracks made a beautiful cake. Uh, and uh, so it became very symbolic and very emotional for a lot of people. So much so that the very first recruit platoon to train in Kilkenny in the third battalion in 1971 and 72 number one platoon, they had a they had a reunion that day and all the guys who the nine guys who were still around from that platoon had their first reunion like and that's like 50 years later. Do you know 70, you know so uh, and and since then they've had uh, a couple of field outings. You know, they've went up for days out, so it managed to reconnect old friends. That's what it did. It re- really, it was a, a an enabler for a lot of us to re-engage with old friends. Wonderful, and and what a wonderful opportunity that was as well, Larry. Mm-hmm. And I suppose looking back on a hundred years, I'm not suggesting you were there for the full hundred <laughs> yeah. years, Larry, but yeah. uh, but certainly you obviously held a pivotal role um, uh. within uh, much of that time frame. Um, are there any, for you personally, do you have any regrets or are there any successes that you would consider over the last hundred years? What were the highs and the lows, I suppose, as far as you could see it and even before your tenure? Yeah, well, you know, so I come from, uh, I trained in the third battalion in the Curra in 1988 and then I was immediately transferred to the 30th battalion. So for the first 10 years of my army career I uh, they were our big competition they were our opposition in, in the Corps Command we would have the third battalion never bet Kilkenny in a hurler match that I can remember right so uh, we had phenomenal hurlers in, in, in James Stevens barracks and to this day they still do uh, uh, and it was really cutting edge uh, competition and when we say uh, it was army rules like the referee wouldn't be quite as vigilant now as, as as he would be in a, a normal match. So so then uh, so when when the third battalion came to Kilkenny it was it took it took a little bit of while for us to the change, the management of change, it was it was a big deal because we lost our history our heritage of the thirtieth battalion. Uh, but quickly you know, quickly enough we, we took on the mantle and and the ownership of the history and heritage that that is uh, to wear the, the crest of the Tor Battalion or the badge of the Tor Battalion. And a very big thank you once again to Larry Scallon there for his thoughts and reflections on the occasion of the centenary of the 3rd Battalion, the oldest infantry battalion in the country and one that Larry himself has served so well. 
there's another few minutes of that particular piece that I didn't get a chance to get out this week but hopefully we'll get to that next week if not on the podcast time now though for another ad break on the programme but do stay with me because after that we'll be hearing once again from Thomastown's Joe Doyle about the history and inscriptions at the medieval graveyard known locally as Thompletagon I'll talk to you in a couple of minutes You're listening to The History Show on KCLR, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltocht, Sport and Media. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. And you're welcome back to part three of tonight's KCLR History Show. Now we're headed out to the townland of Grenon in Thomastown once again. As we heard last week, it's the home to Thompletagon, a medieval graveyard on the west hill above the Nor Valley on the main access route to the castle of Grenon. Having carried out extensive research on the graveyard, Thomastown native Joe Doyle joins us once again this week as he continues to describe the inscriptions on the headstones and the history that each refers to. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. The next tomb on the list is the Clifford tomb, and it reads, Sacred to the memory of Mr. Robert Clifford of Millview, who departed this life on the 9th of April, 18, and it appears to be 51, but that's unclear. And his age was not put in. It said in the, and there was a space left for his age, but it was never put in. So in the something year of his age. Now, it would appear that the first of the Clifford family in the area was William Clifford, who managed the local bank and in time became agent for the Earl of Carrick. And of course, the Carricks lived in Mount Juliet. Uh, Carrick acquired a considerable amount of property in and around the town of Thomastown in 1821 and for £38,000. But it wasn't a wise investment. And by 1850, the family was obliged to avail of the terms of the Encumbered Estates Act. Clifford, as a holder of mortgages on certain town property, he was the plaintiff. Thus, the Clifford estate become an expression associated with much rental property in Thomastown well into the 20th century. And there's another Clifford memorial stone in Thomastown, but this one is inside St. Mary's Church on Market Street. Now, and St. Mary's Church is now a private residence. Originally lo- located on the south wall, it reads, Sacred to the memory of Lieutenant Robert Clifford, adjutant the 1st Punjab Cavalry, who served as a volunteer with the 3rd Punjab Infantry in the Hill Campaign of 1863 and died on the field of battle 26th of October 1863. It said, he fell sword in hand, nobly charging the enemy. Comrades who saw his deeds and knew his worth unite with friends and sorrowing relatives at home in raising this tablet to the honour of one whom in life they loved and in death lamented. Then we come to the Duke tomb. And the inscription reads, Mr. John Duke, late of Thomastown, apothecary, who departed this life September 5th, 1815. Here also interred his father and mother, grandfather and grandmother, aunt and sisters, Marianne and Rebecca, as also his infant nephew, William Duke, who died April 25th, 1819, aged seven months. Also, Mr. Samuel Allen Duke, who departed this life the 20th day of March, <clears throat> the year of our Lord, 
1819 and it appears to be in the 53rd year of his age. Now, the inscription would suggest that the Duke family had a long association with, with Thomas Town. And it would appear that the first reference to them in, in business dates from 1808, when most likely the same Samuel mentioned in the inscription in an ad in a newspaper by him, he is described as an apothecary and shopkeeper. And he informed his customers that supplies of sea coal will be constantly supplied. Now, one might well ask, why was he importing British coal rather than stocking local uh, Castlecomer coal? Essentially, it came down to cost. It was stated at the time that coal transported overland from Castlecomer was costing 10 shillings a tonne, while that which came by sea and then by boats from New Ross could be got at 4 shillings a tonne. Pigott's directory in 1824 described Thomastown as a small market and post town with three streets, although short, it said, are wide and well paved and it listed 31 retail shops. The apothecary is named as Samuel Duke, most likely the son of the Samuel who died in 1819. In 1828, he described his business as apothecary, grocery and seed trade, dealing in drugs, and that would have a different meaning today, dealing in drugs, oils, colours, seeds, clover, trefoil and seed barley. Also, teas and wines. In 1831, he was reported as moving to a larger premises on Low Street, continuing his multiple enterprise of patent, proprietary and veterinary medicine with the help of Mrs. Duke, who we are informed has received garden flowers and other seeds. Duke, throughout the 1830s, was involved in promoting Thomastown commerce and was one of those who contributed to the navigation fund. This we find it very difficult to imagine today, but up until the 1830s, boats plied from Innesteeg to Thomastown. And the boats were hauled by teams of 10, uh, two men on board and eight hauling the boat up the river and likewise on the, on the way back down. So you might think that that cannot have been a cheap way of moving goods, but given the state of the roads at the time, it made far more sense to use the river than uh, the roads such as they were. There's a another tomb, it's an inscribed marker stone in, in the graveyard and it's to a man called Jackie Cody and it just says J. Cody R.I.P. And the other eight inscriptions in the graveyard could be said if you were to say in Irish, referred to people at the, the Dini Moore Raw, whereas uh, Jackie Cody was born locally uh, on the Mall and is remembered as a fisherman and uh, a man who lived by his wits in many ways. Uh, and he made his, as I said, he made his, uh, his living from salmon fishing. And much of it, of course, was done illegally. Now, the late Joe Dunphy, who grew up very close to where the temple is, uh, his house would have been uh, um, where the Castle Avenue scheme now is. He had many enthralling stories about Jackie's exploits. And indeed, he penned a poem about one particular exploit in which Jackie, uh, with Joe in tow, fooled the bailiffs. And it was titled, Let the Punishment Fit the Crime. 
and it is, I think, worth calling to mind. So it goes, come on, come on, over to us. We've been watching you, you see, two fearsome bailiffs on the bank called to Cody and to me. Out there upon the river, we've been searching for a fish, for a hungry stomach. Salmon is a tasty dish. So I often went with Cody on adventures of this kind. In our boat, we'd sail the river. Yes, it thrilled my childhood mind. When it came to gaffing salmon, my friend ranked among the best. And when pockets, they were empty, he would ply his trade with zest. But this day, things had gone badly. No nice salmon graced our boat. So the gaff was safely hidden in the pocket of Jackie's coat. As we glided to the bank then, a stout skiok lay in between. So quite deftly, in its broad butt, Cody stuck the gaff unseen. Out upon the bank at Woodpond, the two bailiffs searched in vain. Now, unfortunately, I have to cut that a little bit short. The clock is against us, but uh, we, there is a part three to that and we, we'll be playing it in full on next week's programme. And uh, I will have that... Uh, poem that lovely lovely poem as part of that part three but unfortunately time is against us and we do have to go to a commercial break i will talk to you shortly the history show on kclr funded through the creative ireland program at the kilkenny county council heritage office which is supported by the department of tourism culture arts Talk, sport and media that's it for this week's history show i'll be back next wednesday do stand by on carries up next with fully loaded so do stay tuned talk to you next week the History Show on KCLR, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Grail Talk, Sport and Media.